welcome to another edition of CCIRA Literacy Conversations. I'm Jessica Rickert, and I'm here again with Molly Rao. And our guest today is Amy Nickel, and she is a CCIRA past president, and we're going to be talking about science and literacy. So Amy, just tell us a little bit about your background. Um, I was a teacher in Windsor for 34 years, uh, mostly teaching in the elementary level. And I also taught at UNC. I was an adjunct professor there, um, teaching science methods and science and engineering practices. Since I retired from Windsor, I've been um, the curriculum coordinator at a place called the Pooter Learning Center. And it's an outdoor learning facility where we usually do field trips with kids outdoors um, by the Pooter River. Um, we try to incorporate lots of science and also history, but we also incorporate the vocabulary in reading and writing as much as we can. I also work with teachers just in terms of professional development in the areas of um, science, next generation science standards that are coming out and um, integrating with literacy and STEM education. Yes, that's very relevant because we are all kind of learning about those new science standards. Um, so the Pooter Learning Center, you're talking about field trips, but in the time of COVID, I know that a lot of districts aren't letting people do field trips anymore. And I've heard about this idea of virtual field trips. Um, are you guys working on doing something towards that? We are. So right now we're just working on um, next generation science standards really takes the idea of phenomenon something that is naturally occurring in, in the world around us and developing um, the science built around what kids might see. And so to make it more place-based, we're looking at things that happen here that are phenomenon. For example, along the river, I might see an eddy spinning, or we might see a pelican swoop down and flip over and land not as gracefully as maybe they hoped. <laughs> Um, those things we're going to try to videotape. We're also looking at the next gen science standards that have really been designed to get kids to think for the students themselves to be the ones that are asking questions. They're the ones that are collecting that data. They're the ones that are going to analyze that data and be able to argue with evidence. So as literacy instructors, we're always wanting our kids to support their thinking with evidence from the text. Well, science goes hand in hand with that because we're going to take things that they might see, the students are going to collect that data, and they're going to make their claim based on that evidence. For example, today I was out um, taking video of different types of pollinators on different types of um, plants that are at the PLC right now in the hopes that um, we'll set it up where students can see that video. They can actually collect data on perhaps which which of those flowers they think the, the insects like the best, which kind of flower um, the bees liked compared to, um, there were some bugs on it as well. Um, and the kids would then come up with their claims and evidence based on what they saw. So that's kind of what we're working on. Um, it's in that embryo stage of just developing it, but we're learning a lot. Well, and so thinking of, phenomena and, you know, that science education piece. Um, I know as a 
social studies teacher, like we don't think of phenomena in the same way. And I think language arts teachers could come up with this too, but that skill of observation. So ob observing a text or observing a material or observing the behavior of bees or the behavior of the water with those eddies, like observational skills are huge. And that makes me think of just descriptive writing. So, you know, I know that you are a master of good writing activities for kids. So could you think of something that you would do, like maybe how you would structure a lesson um, with just getting kids to use their vocabulary and do some good descriptive writing as a scientist or even within language arts and how they can, how a teacher might kind of merge those skills a little bit? Wow. There's a lot in there, <laughs> which I love. Um, when I think about reading and writing or literacy, I always think about, well, what's my end goal? You know, for, for writing, I really want to develop in students that idea that they can communicate um, their thoughts and their ideas um, and express those to other people. Um, with reading, I really, I want kids to um, love that text and fall in love with that text. I want them to be able to read about the world around them and understand what's going on. So when I think about like how we could tie that in at the PLC in terms of the writing, um, I'll go back to today, just trying to videotape what we did today. Um, we started out kind of um, at a distance. So we were looking at perspective. So what does this area look like from at this level? And I might have kids sketch it and then also use descriptive writing to describe it from back and then zoom in closer, um, looking at just maybe the, the flower itself and the, the petals of it and describe those things. The great thing with science is it gives students an avenue to want to write more because they're seeing it, they're touching it. In this instance, they are listening to those, those bugs that are zooming around, hopefully not biting them. Um, they could bite me, um, but they're getting to see it and smell it and hear it and maybe not taste it. Um, but those things that help them to describe um, it. But then we could take it even further and zoom in even closer under a microscope and have the students now look at the pollen itself. Where's the pollen at within the flower that the bees are able to get? Um, so that would be one way that we could describe. That is great. And I love that literacy connection with science and writing because I do think sometimes, and I think it's elementary and secondary, we see science as this thing on its own and it has to be separate. And I'm just wondering, especially like with everybody going virtual last year, and there's a hybrid too, you know, I'm sure that science is one of those things that might get left behind. And so you're talking about a literacy connection with that. Why do you think it's still important to teach science and maybe kind of weave in those next gen science standards too? I'll even go further. I, I think... Um... It's not only important to teach science, but it's also important to teach social study. I think it's the content that is gonna drive the background knowledge. And without background knowledge, I don't think kids can read. So I think um, by not including science and social studies within whatever we're doing, at whatever level we're teaching, we are doing a disservice to our students. 
And the question you asked was, um, so why is it important? Well, if you think about our lives since last February, March, how much of what we're doing is based off of science and understanding of science and how much of it is if people don't understand uh, the idea of germs or washing hands or why masks, what do they do? Um, we were all surprised when we saw how far a sneeze would go. You know, those kind of things, that's all science. Um, when we look at um, the things that are happening in Colorado right now, the wildfires that are occurring, what's happening to our air, what's happening to the animals up there, all of that is science content. So if you guys think about it for a minute, think about a novel that you're just reading for fun. Then think about, is there any content that that novel has within it? Is there any science background that if you understood that science, you would understand the novel better? If you understood the history behind it, you would understand the novel better. Um, one of my favorite books a couple summers ago was where the crowd sing that book. It was so good, but you know, there was science in there. There was some social state, there was place in there and it, understanding where that place was. If you have ever been to a location, you understand the story even better. With the fifth graders, we used to read Far North and then within Far North by Will Hobbs, the Aurora Borealis is a part of that. Um, gosh, if I lived in Alaska and I saw that every day, I'd have a different understanding of that. Um, the, the trees explode. Well, if I've done experiments in my classroom with water and seeing what happens when it freezes, I can understand why those trees are exploding. Um, the bear climbs up and gets their cache of food. Well, around here, we've seen a lot of bears climbing trees, but in other places, you know, they might not have. So background knowledge can really, I think, impact um, students' understanding. So I think content, whether it's science or social studies, needs to be a part of every kid's life at every grade level. But that's my opinion. <laughs> well, and you know that I'm not gonna argue with you on that, Amy, since I'm a science and social studies teacher at the secondary level. Um, I, so one, I was thinking, now, there were so many mm -hmm. thoughts going through my head, so I'm trying to organize them so I can get something coherent out of my mouth. Um, even before Jessica's question, you had mentioned something about like, and this isn't how you put it, but it's kind of how my brain translated it. But those scientific observations can almost be the inspiration to write that, you know, and as you're talking about the importance of content and being able to read and understand things, but also being able to write. I remember as a science teacher, some of the best writing, and I think some of my coworkers were like, whoa, our kids wrote that because we did an, a, a, some work with a mentor text. And I picked, you know, a heavy mentor text and we just used a tiny chunk of it because it was a National Geographic article. And, you know, those are very dense pieces of writing. And this was with sixth graders. So most of that is not sixth grade friendly. We just picked this little chunk at the beginning. And I remember I pointed out to them, it was about bees and just kind of their role as pollinators and sort of talking about what would happen to the world if there were no bees and particularly the impact on agriculture. And 
you know, there was this really nice alliteration in this text we were looking at. And I just pointed out, I said, even when you're writing about like scientific topics, I said, it doesn't have to be a boring science text. <laughs> you can use your good writing strategies. Look at how this author used alliteration. And then I had kids as they were writing kind of their little, um, texts afterwards. You know, I had some kids going very, very simple CER. That's where they were at, but they still, you know, they, they came up with their claim about, you know, the impact of losing bees and here was their evidence and their reasoning. And so, you know, it was really nice, but they cared about it. They're like, I care about the evidence and I care about my reasoning for this because, you know, they had decided it mattered because the first writer had made it powerful. And I had one kid, you know, the my kids that felt a little stronger as writers, they're getting creative. And I remember one kid talked about honey money and, you know, he, you know, he's bringing in that rhyming scheme and, you know, it just made reading scientific writing so much more fun than being like, okay, here's my claim. Here's my evidence. Here's my reasoning. You know, sometimes we get very dry writing in science because that's what we ask for from mm -hmm. kids. And so, you know, just that idea that science and social studies can bring out really rich and thoughtful writing. And, you know, having been a teacher of both, I remember, you know, it was, it was also just like a CER, which could have been super boring. I had a student one year, she was in my science class and in my social studies class, and she made this great CER where she actually used analogies as her writing tactic a little bit to connect Aztecs and oh what did she connect it with it was supposed to be about the Aztecs I think but she pulled in some sort of science concept and I wish I even remembered what but all of a sudden they were like something in science where I want to say it was something with chemistry but uh, oh no no it was like um, planet formation. So the Aztecs were like little planetesimals colliding and, you know, their gravity is pulling more in and, you know, they're forming this big planet because the Aztecs just sort of like pulled in all these other particles and formed a whole planet. Like it was the coolest thing. So you're, you're really right. Like when I think about good writing that kids do, it's because there's content there that makes it come alive. But there's yeah. also, you know, in content writing, there's good literacy strategies that make it come oh, yeah. alive. So we all yeah. need both. But that that just, you know, you're you're talking about that reminded me of that. So I wanted to kind of share that story and that perspective because they all complement the each other. Yeah, that's the magic of integration. When we, whether it's like at the junior high level, high school level, or elementary level, if we start to to see things um, integrated instead of separate silos. If we as teachers start commu communicating, um, you know, you as a social studies teacher finding out, you know, what they're doing in writing um, in their language arts class and seeing how you could pull that in or have the kids do something by applying what they're doing there into your classroom as well. As an elementary teacher, um, for most of my career, I had kids self-contained, so I had them for everything. And so the magic of pulling math and reading and writing and content across the board um, was magical. Well, and I think especially for elementary teachers, that's that question of time. I don't ever have enough time. And I know some people are doing, you know, half in person, half virtual. And so 
this kind of, if you can combine and integrate, then it does address that question of time as well. And then, you know, and go oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to just say, uh, this summer I did some professional development for um, some teachers in this area. So one of the things that we did was um, I would go out and um, like get a phenomenon and ask a question. For example, um, one day the the breeze was blowing and my neighbor's flag was moving. And so I just videotaped and asked the question. So why do flags flutter in the wind? And then what we did then is I said, okay, your job is to go explore with some materials. You can use paper, you can use cloth, you can use a dowel, you can use whatever you want, but your job is to figure out why do they flatter? Does angle matter? Does where the wind's coming from? Does the amount of wind matter? And then when we meet again, I want you to share what you found out. So as a way that we could still do inquiry and do some exploration where the students went out on their own. And then when we met back virtually, then the stuff they shared was amazing. I mean, it was just incredible. All the things that they tried in the hour that they were gone um, probably entertained all of their neighbors. I'm pretty sure. But, uh, you know, things like that, we can still do inquiry. We can still get kids to question. We can still get them to wonder. And that's that's what we want. We want to maintain that sense of wonder for them if it's in school or it's virtual and just being creative in how we do that. Well, and I think about our second language learners or our kids that have, you know, not, they don't have access to a ton of vocabulary. What you're talking about, they're seeing the flag flutter. So then they know what that word means. And then all the videos that you're doing at the Pooter Learning Center too, it's connecting that vocabulary for those kids so they understand. And then they can practice their speaking because that's another standard that we want to work on is speaking and listening. And Molly talked about it last week. Um, there's a, it's Flipgrid, but there's other technology pieces out there so that kids can share what they're observing, what they're thinking about, what they're wondering. And so there's that connection. Cause I know that right now we're concerned about kids and that they don't have connection to each other. So you could build in all of these things, all of these standards that we could bundle in, but then also thinking about that social emotional piece for kids as well. Exactly. Well, one of the things in the next gen science standard just flies into what you were saying really, really well. And that's um, arguing from evidence and getting kids to realize they're not arguing, but they are discussing based on the evidence they have. One of the tools, if they were doing virtual classes that they could use is, I know on Zoom meetings, you have the breakout sessions that you can um, assign them randomly to, and they can go discuss that and then come back, choose one person as a speaker um, to share back. I know, I think Google Classroom probably has the same um, kind of thing. Um, the interactive whiteboards that are on um, things available now, making things so that students, instead of just sitting and, and listening, they're actually taking part in it and they're giving their feedback as well. Works pretty well. Well, and trying to think of some other tools that might be available for teachers in terms of that feedback process. So um, if you haven't played around with Jamboard, 
I see it as being a little bit, yeah, I mean, there's lots of ways you could use it, but the way that I've found easiest to use it with a group of kids right now is to just let them use the sticky notes and post a sticky note with some information or like, you know, some of their feedback and answers. Um, you know, you can teach kids to use an extension like Screencastify where they can actually use their webcam and they can share things and talk to each other. Um, um, <laughs> let's see what other, there's lots of great tools for some of that interaction. You know, if you've got an LMS, um, today, my kids, um, had, a, an assignment in the canvas discussion board. So we have like, there's discussions. And so it's like an old school chat where you can post something and then they can reply, they can reply to each other. So I had them use the video tool in that because it's got a video tool and they recorded themselves just saying their name so we could learn how to say their name correctly. And then they talked about something that they like to do or something they did over the summer. And I asked them to respond to each other and, you know, just be like, hey, I also like blah, blah, blah. And so I saw kids, you know, starting to interact in that way. Yeah, and so, cool. you know, just those little opportunities and it could be content related. But, you know, that one was more of a beginning of the year icebreaker when we're remote and not in the same building. So, you know, you can get creative with a lot of things. There's lots of great tools out there these days. Well, and we so you've kind of mentioned a couple of pieces of the next gen science standard. So I kind of want to talk about that because I know that every school district is in different places with implementation and information. So you talked about getting kids to think and ask questions, arguing from evidence. What else do you think would be important for people to know about these next gen science standards? Um, I think that the biggest thing is that it should change the way we teach. Um, it really is the kids who are asking the questions, planning the investigation, collecting the data, or doing the same for engineering, designing um, solutions for engineering. Um, they are the ones that are doing it instead of the old model where the teacher just spit out all the knowledge and, and it was factoids and they had to take a test on factoids. The idea is really to get um, three-dimensional assessment as well, where the students are really looking at all three dimensions. Those three dimensions of the next gen are the dis disciplinary core ideas, and those are those concepts that we want kids to know. But the other two is where the power comes in, the science and engineering practices, and that's the thing that I was mentioning earlier. But the really fun one that if people haven't started to kind of play around within their head is cross-cutting concepts. So cross-cutting concepts are things like patterns. Now we see patterns in reading, we see patterns in math, but there's also patterns like in the example I gave today, there were, if we watched it, there was patterns on where those bees or insects would land. There's patterns that we see with shadows. There's patterns that we see in um, how leaves are designed or how water flows off of leaves. So there's patterns everywhere. And then the, another one is structure and function. So if we're talking literacy, we're talking about the structure of different types of um, sentences. We're looking at types of what's a noun, what's a verb. But when we talk about science, we're looking at what's a predator and what's a prey. How is their structure of their um, skulls designed so that 
they can chew meat or they can chew um, leaves. Um, another one that we talk about in reading all the time is cause and effect. This causes this. Well, in science, there's tons of cause and effect. Um, if I overwater my plants, usually not my problem. I usually forget to water my plants. There's this effect of they die off. I don't know why. Um, so uh, those kind of things, when you really think about it, make it really fun. Um, energy and matter, um, stability and change. All of those things are cross-cutting concepts. So we can take throughout the science disciplines, but we can also take them across curricular things. Um, one of the schools that came out last year to the Pooter Learning Center just said, we are focused on patterns. So everything that we did out there that day investigated patterns in the natural world. It was insightful to me because I had never really looked at it that way. So it's kind of fun. Going beyond that, I know one of my, and you know, every, every science teacher has different ways that they go about these things. One of my favorite ways of sort of working with phenomena and then looking at some of those cross-cutting um, concepts and, you know, just doing three-dimensional science, I really liked the strategy where you use storylines. Is that something that you've done much and do you have? Have advice for when do you do that? When do you not? Like, how do you choose to do that? And maybe you can talk a little bit about like storylines in science and kind of what that means. So storyline is just starting off with that phenomenon and then building lessons or building investigations for students so that they're gaining knowledge, gaining knowledge, gaining knowledge, little nuggets at a time until you give them a challenge um, it could be science or engineered based where they have to solve the problem based on what they are looking at. Um, gosh, there's so many, they've got to think of one. Um, but if you had a storyline of, um, at the Pooter Learning Center, we have this little canyon that was gouged out during 2013, but I don't tell kids that. So my storyline starts with, what do you guys see here? What do you think happened? How could we find out what happened here? So then we do a lot of investigations through weathering, erosion, deposition, um, stream tables, those kind of things. So they build their knowledge um, until they can actually find out and discover. And they try to answer the question through claims that evidence, have their argumentation with each other and communicate with each other revise their thinking and uh, answer the question. I don't know, Molly, if that helps. <laughs> or... Absolutely, Amy, that absolutely helps. Um, so if a teacher is working to design something like that, um, do you have any, well, one, I, you know, and I know we're all struggling to be <laughs> teachers in you know, a world where being hands-on is suddenly a little bit scary and hard. So do you have any thoughts or tips and tricks or even things that you, as an external resource, creating some virtual um, materials, like how could a teacher go about creating some of those opportunities when we might not be able to like 
we might not have the materials or we might not have a place where kids can go do some of those things. Like what would your advice be to teachers in this crazy environment? Because you're a creative person. You can do this, right? <laughs> well, I'm thinking of two things. So let me start. And then this is where you get to edit. Um, so I think teachers, man, you just walk outside and you start to see phenomenon. I mean, once you start to think in that realm that it's everywhere, you just start to go, wait, how did that happen? Um, just watching, um, there was this hole in the ground um, and a spider web all around it. And just watching this little spider, it's like, okay, how did he design that the way that he did? How do spiders not stick to their own webs? You know, I, it's just fascinating once you start thinking about it. So starting with a phenomenon um, that fits their content. I mean, the teachers really need to know where I'm going. What do I want the students to, to know by the end of this? Um, not every phenomenon is going to match their standards that they're responsible for. So I, I think that's where I'd start. Um, I think the best way to learn is to get students involved and get their hands on. But I know during COVID, you can't. But I also know um, there's a lot of strategies that you can do. Um, if I was going to have students um, investigate rocks, I, in the old days, you would have a rock collection in your room, but now you might have the kids go out and collect their own rock outside <laughs> and bring it in to look at, um, to, to investigate a little bit more, or each one of them to have their own pipette to go drop water on different leaves outside to see what happens when raindrops fall. Um, you'd also have to have some protocols in place where once you've had it, then it goes into the disinfection thing, you know, and I know that teachers already are putting that kind of thing in place. You would do the same thing with hands-on material or like put in a timeout for 72 hours, whatever you would need to do, but we can't miss out on that piece. Well, and that reminds me, um, I do the same thing with my books. We have a quarantine box in my room. And so I, told the kids I'm like you can still borrow books we yeah can show books so if there's a book you want to read take it but then if you decide you don't want to read it or you're done reading it it goes into the quarantine box it has to I think, quarantine yeah I think the other thing especially if people are doing virtual things for a long time um our school that I was at we didn't have science equipment so most everything I did in terms of designing science lessons was with junk that I could find around my house and um, toilet paper tubes. Um, you know, anything that was junk became a science experiment. And you'd be amazed at how much science you can learn and not spend any money on it. I think that's good. I was going to ask you because you did teach at UNC and so that's a good thing for new teachers because they're starting off and we do need to supply a lot of things. And so getting that junk, do you have any other ideas or suggestions for new teachers coming into the profession? I mean, have you seen things that you've talked to some of your students about or some of the concerns they might have? Um, you know, classroom management is still... I think as first-year teachers, that's the thing that um, is such a learning curve. 
um, just figuring out what do you do with that kid who mouths off to you or, you know, or won't do what you ask them to do or, um, you know, and for them, I think um, how they respond that first or second time, the first week of school can set up how the rest of the year is going to go. And um, I used to always just, I would smile a lot and give that look all at the same time, you know, so that they knew I love them dearly, but mm -mm, we're not going to do that <laughs> here. Um, but I think the other thing that it doesn't matter what subject you are in, if you as the teacher are excited about it, if you are engaged, if you think about your lessons and how you can engage your students in the lesson design. I always use the 5E learning model. It didn't matter if it was math or if it was reading or if it was social studies or science. My first step was, how can I engage them? What's a question that I can ask? What's a discrepant event? What's something that, that I'm gonna use to just get them hooked? Um, how am I gonna allow them to explore? How can I have them? A lot of times the students thought I was the dumbest person in the entire world. And they, <laughs> I would be in so much trouble if it wasn't for them telling me all of the information because I let them discover a lot during that exploration. And then we explained it. But a lot of times the explanation came with them telling me what they observed and I would put the label on it then. Oh, so you saw that? Oh, well, do you know that? <laughs> um, and then elaborating on that and applying it to their world. How do you see that? Um, if we were doing Newton's first law of motion, you know, or whatever, how do you see that in real life? Well, that's why you wear a seatbelt, but the kids would discover that and actually come up with some of those things. And then for me to have a way to assess them where that, whether that's writing or our discussions or um, whatever, to give me an idea of what my next steps are, where can I take them? But I think if if teachers, first year teachers or whoever can figure out, okay, here's this unit or here's this this book that I want them to read, how am I going to hook them? How am I going to get them to, they can't wait to get their hands on it, you know? And it's almost like, oh, uh, well, you know, no, I don't know. I guess, I guess I could let you read it, you know, or I could, guess I could let you figure out how it works. Um, it's just so much fun when you teach that way. I think that's a beautiful way to end because I think that's all like, you know, if I think about my best days as a teacher, it's when we're having fun. So my advice to the world, how can you have fun with your kids? <laughs> even, even in COVID, have some fun with them. <laughs> that is great advice, Molly. Thank you, Amy, for joining us for another installment of CCIRA Literacy Conversations. Well, thank you guys. Thanks for listening to CCIRA Literacy Conversations podcast. To find out more about CCIRA, go to ccira.org. On ccira.org, you can join as a member or find great resources like our professional development blog, which posts every Tuesday and has a variety of guest writers on an awesome selection of topics. CCIRA is a professional organization of educators and community members dedicated to the promotion and advancement of literacy. We also have a Twitter account at Colorado Reading 
You can find us on Instagram at CCIRA underscore Colorado Reading. Or you can find us on Facebook, where we also have a members-only group that we're trying to build. And our Facebook account is CCIRA Colorado Reading. We'd love to hear more from you. And again, if you're looking for new content, please send any questions or things you'd be interested in seeing from CCIRA to CCIRAvideo at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and have a great week.